Hello and welcome to the Escape Pod, Escape Technologies podcast series where we discuss topics directly relevant to the visual effects and post-production sector today. Today's episode is focused on COVID-19 specifically, its wider impact on visual effects and post-production studios and hopefully how we'll move successfully beyond it. Our special guest today is Neil Hatton, Chief Executive Officer of UK Screen Alliance. And Neil is well positioned to provide unique insight into this topic and the challenging circumstances that we're all working under today. Good afternoon, Neil. Thanks for talking to us today. Hi there. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So, Neil, I think just for those people who are not familiar with you and the organisation, could you just introduce UK Screen Alliance and give us a, a brief outline of what the, the organisation is? Right. Well, it's it's the it's the trade body for post production visual effects, animation, and all, I mean, essentially, we also cover the the studio operators and anyone who provides a, a service uh, to the TV, film, and commercials industry. So it's pretty broad. Um, but in terms of um, its 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 main constituencies, they are post production VFX and animation. They're, they're by far the, the largest number of companies that we have. And we have over 100 companies who are part of the organisation. So it's, uh, it's a membership organisation and the company is the member. So uh, what we do is we're here for, to be advocates for the companies. So we are basically there to represent them, uh, particularly to government, but also to some of the arm's length bodies like the BFI or Screen Skills, and and to represent their interests so that we, we can optimise the, the, the business advantages for them and obviously uh, minimise the disadvantages that come up and uh, just generally uh, push towards getting the best outcome for those companies. So it's uh, it's been going for nearly 15 years now. So it, in fact, it might even be longer, it's 17 years. Actually, it was 2003 when it started. Over the years, it, it's grown. Um, about three, four years ago, we went into partnership with Animation UK. So we brought the, the animation companies in at the same time there. And uh, it's pretty busy, I have to say. Particularly at the moment, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, it, it was. I, you know, I, I've been in this job now since 2016. And uh, when I first uh, got the job as CEO, you know, I thought the, the big issues around that time were going to be apprenticeships because that was a big talking point um, as I joined. But within six months of me joining, of course, we had the referendum and uh, it became Brexit, became the next big thing. Yeah. Now, we, now we've got COVID. So I started with the apprenticeships, then with Brexit, then with COVID. So the next thing's probably going to be something beginning with D. So... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows what's going to be next? Um, but you've had, them, you've had an eventful tenure anyway, haven't you? It's certainly yeah. not been dull. Um, you, you, you mentioned being involved with the organisation for quite some time. I mean, you're, um, you were in the business, weren't you, originally, you know, as an editor and a business owner? I mean, how did you arrive at, um, at this particular role, having come from, a, you know, being directly in the business in post-production? I started years and years and years ago as an installation engineer, believe it or not, in, in the BBC. Um, but very quickly found that incredibly boring. I found engineering, which is what I studied, I found it very boring and uh, very quickly moved on into the programme making departments. Um, but I became, a, you know, a, um, an editor and then I worked for a facility company that uh, no longer exists. And then I started my own company in 1992. And in fact, uh, I was one of the, the pioneers of nonlinear editing when it really started breaking through at that point. But, you know, for my claim to fame, I, I cut the very first documentary ever in the world on a Lightworks. Uh, and uh, that was quite a challenge back in 1992. Um, once you got 500 shots in the database, it just constantly crashed. But um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a, a struggle, but we got through it. And it was, it was actually the first non-linear program that had been, uh, that was transmitted by the BBC. Uh, is that pre the kind of advent of Media Composer then? Is that that's earlier technology, is it, why it works? It was, uh, they were having a bit of a, a fight at the time. Right. And I remember seeing it, you know, going back to probably late 1990 when, you know, the, the technology was pretty poor, compression was pretty poor, and you had pixels as big as your face. So <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was quite a, a journey. Um, but when she'd started to use it, you know, particularly as, as I'd been a video editor on tape, um, it was a massive revelation. It's the idea that you could, you know, 
shorten the sequence instantly was something obviously you couldn't do on tape so it was it was, course, it was yeah. a really easy way of editing but uh, yeah it was it, that was a, a a kind of pioneering phase and we we built up the company off the back of that um and that went on for about 15 years um, and you know for a time it was great but it did get difficult because there was a lot of competition around and um there were certain things that were also going on in in the, the whole media industry which was making it more difficult for post-production certainly the golden days of post-production were over by then and uh, i i got to a point where i just thought you know this is a, this is quite a risky business and i actually um exited from that business and started uh, working for somebody else but it was um it was uh, all the way through that period um i was conscious of the fact that we didn't have a trade body there was nobody speaking for us and in 2003, there was, um, th there was a, a piece of legislation called the Communications Act, which is what gave the independent producers the, the right to, 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 keep, to retain their intellectual property rights. So that actually changed the dynamics of the industry quite significantly at that point. But when I look back at the amount of input that the post-production industry had into that legislation, it was zero absolutely nobody provided any information into that into the consultations that led up to it and i thought that was a massive mistake and i thought it's as an industry we should never make that mistake again and so th that came together with a few other things that were going on at the time I, I found that the department of international trade or the department of trade and industry as they used to be called then yeah were actually looking at this and they, the government wanted to speak to um to the industry but had nobody to do it through um and there were the old uk film council was 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 trying to get a trade body together and i heard about this um, but that trade body was built around film and vfx it wasn't built around broadcast tv which is where i was sitting at the time so uh i brought together about 20 other companies that were in in that space and we, we went to the film council and said look we should make this bigger this shouldn't be just about VFX. It should be about post and VFX. So you were instrumental the at the very beginning, really, for, yeah. in terms of representing the industry to to the government and, and its, its voice as a trade body. And so what, I mean, obviously we'll get to COVID-19 shortly, um, but um, prior to that, that situation arising i mean what would a what would a normal week month look like for for you in terms of your work with the the organization i mean what what issues would you be covering on a daily basis well i think coming up to covid we were definitely looking as i said and we mentioned apprenticeships was a big one and that 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 really is just the tip of the iceberg on on kind of educational policy there has been uh, a, a kind of kind of feeling that perhaps you know there is a gap in terms of what a graduate comes out of university, the skills that a graduate has at that point, and the skills that are needed to be employable in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our, our history with that sort of speaks to that a little bit because Escape Technology was originally part of a company that included or incorporated Escape Studios, which which was a specific training facility for visual effects um, and was really developed for precisely the reason you've just outlined, you know, which was that from a technical software point of view actually lots of graduates didn't have the necessary skills when leaving education to go into a post or vfx facility even at a junior level so so yeah i think that's a that's a very real problem isn't it i mean it continues to be actually although i think it has improved uh, i think over the last three to four years we've been working really hard on that probably a little, little bit more than that you know because one of the things that um the industry's been very good at is is, is linking the chain up between you know school and college and university and then into work and apprenticeships is one level of that but there's also there's a lot of work being done around um, further education and and so the next gen skills academy was very much a, a, an industry um, initiative so we're you know we're very much in, in favor of that and we promote that all the time so we've we've done a lot of work on policy work around education to try and get our skills pipeline uh, as as smooth as possible and as efficient as possible and part of the driving force for that is, is not only because it's, you know, it's the right thing to do, but part of the driving force of that comes down, down to the, the second issue that I, I mentioned, which was Brexit. And the fact that we are now from January, this, this coming January, 
we'll be having to if we if we recruit people from Europe who are not already here, we're going to have to pay for visas for them. So that was a big uh, a big problem for us. We've actually done a lot of lobbying work around that and. We've lessened the impact on the industry because we campaigned really hard to make sure that all the roles in VFX and animation were on the shortage occupation list. And that means that the visa costs are lower and you, you don't have to meet the same minimum salary threshold, which actually is, is quite high for our industry. You know, so that would have, we, we did some calculations and we, we reckoned it would have cost our industry £20 million a year. So it was it was quite a quite a big hit, um, but you can't you can't go out campaigning on visas and stuff like that if you don't have a commitment to growing home homegrown talent. But it's 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 that's those were two big issues for us. But we have always looked towards Europe as as, as our. If we can't find people in the UK, we've looked towards Europe because there are some really good educational establishments in Europe that produce some really uh, work-ready graduates, uh, which we don't produce enough of in the UK. I mean, the rest of the time, I would, I'd, I'd, we spend a lot of time horizon scanning. So, you know, we, we, we obviously look at the, uh, what's coming out of government. We're part of various committees that you get insights from. Uh, and we're looking for things that are coming down the road towards us that we may have an, want to have an opinion on. You know, and, and then we'll engage with the right people. So, and to what degree do you um, do you sort of collaborate with other trade organisations? Because I think one of the things when I was researching this discussion, there are there are I think clearly going to be overlaps, which we'll probably come to shortly, with say the British Film Commission and other bodies that that represent other parts of the media or film and television industry. I mean, do you have a, a, a sort of a, a structured way where you collaborate or or work together with those other organisations where it's required or where it's relevant? Well, we've always had good collaboration with the BFC and with the BFI, because um, obviously, you know, the, the inward investment remit of the British Film Commission uh, fits very neatly with the VFX, um, because, you know, that, the, the, the largest part of that, that VFX work comes from West Coast America. Yeah. And, and therefore, you know, we have that, that strong relationship with the BFC. I mean, some of the things that we do with them is they, they quite often will bring um, delegations of producers from the West Coast over to the UK um, to introduce them to the, the companies and the facilities and the locations and the studios. So uh, we normally would do a, a, a post and VFX showcase as part of that trip. You know, so we, we work quite, very closely in collaboration with them. And then obviously the BFI, yeah, yeah, we linked in with them on on various other committees that they subcommittees that they have. But the the what happened when uh, Brexit came along was that the BFI convened a screen sector task force, where all the various trade bodies and the government departments and the screen agencies from the nations and regions all sit on that that task force. And, and so that was there as a vehicle to, to basically talk with one voice to government. And of course, we represented Post and VFX in that, in that conversation. And that was convened specifically to for, do with for Brexit. For yeah. Brexit, yeah. Okay, and of course, has now had a, had a an extended life, really, as a result of the, the well, COVID. Yeah, it became the COVID screen sector yeah. task force. Yeah, but that's how it's worked. So, but the the issue with that, you know, when when we repurposed the BFI one um, right at the beginning, this was just before the lockdown when it got repurposed, and the issue is there were seventy people on that task force, so it was it's quite a big and potentially unwieldy beast. Yeah. So it was very quickly rearranged into kind of four task and finish groups. And the British Film Commission were given the task and finish group around what we we're going to do with inward investment, how we, how we deal with that, particularly in film and TV drama. And then there's, a, you know, there's another group around broadcasters and another group around indie film and a group around exhibition and distribution. So they're all looking at individual bits of this puzzle. And as part of the Inward Investment Group, we've worked with them. And their, their remit has been around getting production going, but also uh, how Post and VFX can, can uh, be brought back into you know, the, the, the kind of uh, level of business that it was enjoying prior to the, to the pandemic. 
Uh, and then there's, uh, you know, there are a number of other pieces around, you know, legal work and uh, insurance. That's a massive issue. So um, all of those people have been feeding in and, you know, we have, it's basically going through the conduit of the BFI. Right, uh, okay. We are making the, making the, the case for VFX and post-production into that, into that funnel. So let's talk about the, the sort of emergence of the COVID crisis then a little bit. I mean, what, um, you know, what, at what stage do you think you became aware that things were changing quite rapidly and that, you know, this was going to involve specific action and, and I, as I'm sure it now is doing, take up, you know, significant amounts of your effort and energies at, um, at UK Screen Alliance? I mean, when did, it, when did it start to get real for you as far as that's it concerned? It was probably about the second week of February when we realised it was going to be big. Yeah. I mean, we, it, was obvious, it was obviously in the news, but I think the point was, um, you know, when we started to worry about what was going to happen to uh, filming, there was this issue starting to emerge about shoots not being insured. Yeah. Because the, the insurers, you know, obviously you've got to have insurance for your production, otherwise the financiers get very nervous. Um, and are you insured for business interruption? Are you insured for um, infectious diseases or notifiable diseases? And is COVID-19 one of those in infectious diseases? Well, in most people's policies, no, it wasn't. And in fact, you know, most of the insurance policies these days have COVID exclusions. Yeah, so, you, can't put a, you can't put a disease that no one had ever heard of or seen before in, in well, a I mean, I, policy, can you, I guess? So it wasn't there. But, well, I have uh, some sympathy for the insurers, really. But, yeah. uh, but essentially, that they had an unquantifiable risk. Okay, if, if somebody's building burns down, that's just one company, you know, and there's thousands of other companies who are uh, still operating. But all of a sudden, everybody wants to claim, and that was clearly not, not going to happen. So that started to worry us. And then, of course, you know, Mission Impossible pulled out of Venice mid to late February uh, because, obviously, the, the Italian pandemic was really taking hold at that point. And then it, I think that's the point where everybody realised, no, this is going to sweep across the world and it's going to be bad for us. Yeah. And and so we are, at that point, actually very, it was it was March the 6th and we bailed out of our office on March the 6th um, because we just kind of said, you know, we can operate remotely without any problem. Um, why don't we try and do it early? And then if there's any any problems we can uh, you know i can always nip back into the office and, and sort things out if, if we need to but actually we we've operated like this for the last well however however, however long since march the 6th you know it's several months now and um we've not found it particularly problematic you know that's uh, but then again we're not we're not having to do what a vfx companies had to do with the, the technology we're just using you know microsoft teams and that's that's fine yeah yeah of course but i mean it um was there a sort of increasing volume of, of dialogue or calls from industry partners, you know, the companies for whom you're advocates, for to whom you represent, as this started to kind of gather pace? I mean, was were you hearing a great deal about it in terms of concerns? And, you know, how did that dialogue start to shape up as things move forward? Well, I think that there's one thing that we've, we've learned is there are there are moments when you just don't interfere. When, when people are, you know, heads down, dealing with a crisis, you know, nobody wants nobody wants just to, you to be nagging them or saying, yeah. what's, what's going on? Just let them get on with it. And you, we were picking up, picking it up anyway. But um, and at that point, there wasn't an awful lot we could do about it, because one of the things that we, we're quite careful about is, yes, we represent people, but um, they're all they're all competitors. You know, they all need to, to, to do their own thing. And we, we, we try not to get in the way of, of that. Uh, because that that road leads to the to a cartel, and we don't want to do that. But essentially, you know, yes, we were hearing you know very very serious problems, uh, and people who are who were doing amazing feats of engineering in very short amounts of time to get thousands of people out of the office and into their own homes and equipped and working, all within the same timescale and still delivering. That was that was the major thing. You know, there were still delivery deadlines at that point. I think once that transition had happened, um, by about you know the once the lockdown came, one of the things that we had uh, already instigated by then was that, you know, this is an industry-wide thing. It's not just about our members. Um, there are a number of companies who are our members, and a number of companies who are not. But 
it was something that was affecting the whole industry. And also, I quite quickly realized that, uh, you know, in terms of business development for, for us, the chances of increasing our membership at, at all at the point where everybody's work had suddenly vanished was, was also pretty small. So um, we just said, look, why don't, we, why don't we open this all up to everybody? And we started doing a, a Zoom call on a Wednesday morning. And everybody has been dialing in. We've had, you know, 50, 60 people on that Zoom call every week. And we've done one every week all the way through the crisis. And it's been a forum where people have been able to share their concerns, um, hear the feedback from, you know, what I've gleaned from government, from my conversations, and and also for us to to pick up themes that we can then pick up and run with, um, areas where we have got common concerns and, and things that I can... I can potentially get some traction within government. So that's what we've been doing. And, you know, everybody who is in postal VFX, you know, who manages a postal VFX company is welcome to join that call on a Wednesday. Yeah, I've spoken to a handful of our, um, of our VFX customers, actually, and I know that some of them have been attending that call. I think that's a fantastic thing to have done. And as you see, you know, has a really, you know, kind of community driven um, and inclusive out- outcome, really, which is as you say, it gives gives a great form, a forum for people to be able to exchange information, which is really needed at, at this point in time. We've had a lot of people who come have told me about you know their experience of coming on that call, and it's almost like therapy. I think for some of them, it's, yeah. um, it feels like um, they are having that realization. It's not just them; that everybody else is is in this boat, and it's it's not it's it's not great. Uh, but there are things we can do and there are things we can instigate that will help. And there is so, some comfort to be taken from knowing that we're all in it together, so to speak. It's, you know, it isn't a problem that afflicts a small portion or one company over another. It's, 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 it's across the board, isn't it, as you say? So, um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to talk about for a second here is, is that you, you've obviously established some um, guidance for safe working practices uh, in post-production and visual effects. And I think that's now... That now has its it's fully formed in in a document which is downloadable from your website and can be reviewed. I mean that is quite a serious undertaking. It's quite a significant piece of work. I mean, having read through it this morning, it would have required did require input from various partners, various other bodies and authorities, um, and it it tackles pretty much every aspect of working within a COVID nineteen safety regulatory fashion. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, how long has that taken to put together? You know, what, how, at what point did you, you know, foresee that that was going to become necessary, and and how has it been received by the, you know, the industry at the moment? It seems to have been received quite well. There was certainly a, a worry, um, particularly amongst post companies, that they would get a lot of pressure from their clients. You know, one one of the themes of the document is is about is it appropriate to have client attendance at the moment and that was one of the the major worries from a number of companies and we all were worried you know if 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 one company decides yes okay we're going back to situation as it was uh, anyone who uh, wants to come into our facility can come in uh, and and view their film or listen to their mix or review their shots or whatever in in a face-to-face environment and that was a worry that you know once once that once one company started doing that, the pressure would be on everyone to do that. The the impression I'm getting talking to our customers and the, the businesses we know throughout visual effects is that they aren't doing that, and most of them are using innovative technology in order to get around that problem. Is that what you've been finding? In in general, yes, that's correct. Yeah. It certainly is true in VFX. Um, I think in post, it's a bit more. Uh, you know, the clients are are known to be. You know, they they tend to attend the uh, the. the the facility a lot more than you would do in a VFX facility. So um, it, it's an issue, I think, and it will become an issue as we start to withdraw from, from lockdown. And, you know, at the moment, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, I can't go and visit my relatives. Uh, well, I can, but I've got to go and sit in the garden in the rain with them if I do go to, to meet them. So if that's, if that's not allowed, if I can't go and sit in their front room and have a cup of tea with my relatives, why would uh, an employer want to put their employees into a sealed box with air conditioning that recycles air for eight hours with a bunch of strangers? You know, it, it just yeah, it doesn't really stack it, up. It doesn't really stack up, and there was a lot of worry about this. And, and it, you know, 
is it is it about should they be wearing PPE? Should they be more than two meters away? All this kind of stuff. The fact is, if you're in there for eight hours, I mean, I know as an editor, one of my dreads was on a Monday morning when the producer came in and, and he, they had a sniffle. You know you're going to get the cold. Yeah. So, so that that just doesn't feel comfortable to ask your employees to do that, and in fact, it's not responsible to do it either. So. Uh, as an employer, obviously, you have a responsibility and uh, towards the health and safety of your staff and of the visitors that you have in, in the facility. And if somebody, you know, God forbid, they did actually catch COVID-19 or bring it into your facility and it's sudden, you suddenly become an infection hotspot, that's really not a good place to be. And, and so um, we, f- we felt it was necessary just to put some framework around this because we know that the clients, particularly in post-production, do kind of pick off and they play one facility against another. And they'll say, you know, I want to bring five people into the, to, to view my Dolby Vision HDR grade. I want to bring five people in to do that. And you're saying, actually, no, we, we, at the moment, we, if we did it, maybe one person is enough. And that, that needs to be the rule that everybody has. But then you'll get the clients will play you off you'll say, oh, well, so-and-so said they can do that. And then all of a sudden it becomes a free-for-all and it becomes unsafe. So that's one of the reasons, that's the main reason we did it. But the other reason was we were we were aware through the BFC of the work that was going on in the filming code of practice. And we felt that it would seem strange if there was a whole code of practice around filming and there was nothing around post and VFX. It would, it would seem strange that we hadn't done something. So straight away we got on it and we actually launched exactly at the same time as the, the British Film Commission's filming code of practice. But it's not a code of practice, it's guidance. So um, I think it's it, it's good that we, we did that because actually of all the guidance documents that have been put out, you know, there's one by the broadcasters, one by the British Film Commission, one by the APA, none of them cover post and VFX. They're purely about getting filming restarted yeah i hadn't thought actually that there could be a you know a, a non-compete component to that which is you know obviously leveling the field so that one company doesn't think it's acceptable to do something that another company isn't doing again a very laudable kind of um attitude to have taken really i mean we're well, talking you know we'll compete on on quality we'll compete for money we'll compete on talent and creativity creativity yeah. all of those things the one thing we must never compete on is our willingness to acquiesce to external pressure that leads to and safety, unsafe yeah. working conditions. Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting. Um, and I, I also noticed about the, you know, the the guidance for safe working document. I mean, presumably that's intended to be a live document because things are changing so quickly. I mean, I noticed in there there is there is some information about the wearing of face masks, and obviously, I think that was probably, was probably written before the announcement that that surfaced a few days ago that you know compulsory face masks on public transport. But again, yeah. you know, it's it's going to be a, a challenge for you guys, I presume, to to keep the document kind of in step with you know legislation changing, you know, social expectations changing, and and presumably you intend to do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a living document. So that document is 1.0. You know, we already have a few candidates of changes for 1.1. And the one you pointed out is is one of those candidates. Um, but there are there are a number of others. I mean, the test and trace is is also something that was emerging whilst we were writing the document and how we yeah. fit in with that. And, and, and employers can can do a lot of that internally. There is a you know, there's obviously this NHS system, which is it's 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 kind of being made in front of our eyes and we were trying to it, it, there was a bit of moving goalposts stuff going on as we were writing it so um we're going to have to fit in with that and i i think there are certain areas where because uh, we went through a process with, in, it, of consultation not just with the, with the post and vfx companies you know the the bfc helped us greatly with with actually sending it across to la and put it around a number of us studios as well so we had some feedback from them and we had feedback from the uh, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS. And we also had feedback from the health and safety executive, uh, as well as legal advice from Wigan. So there was a lot of people looked at it, but we went through a process in the weekend before the launch with DCMS to basically get their blessing. 
Uh, we didn't need their permission. The, the British Film Commission did need their permission because they're an arm's length body. They're funded by government, whereas we're independent. So um, we, we, we went through the process basically just to get the blessing of DCMS. And there were a few things where I, I felt the, the government guidance was perhaps a little woolly or a little soft yeah. as, an, as an employer you perhaps wanted to go a little bit further than the government were actually saying, particularly around, you know, if somebody in your facility suddenly presents with COVID-19, well, obviously you send them home, but if they're your employee, then perhaps you want to insist that they get tested. Now, it's, it's, it's not mandatory that you get tested if you have COVID-19, and that is reflected in the document. But I think as an employer, you probably do want to get your employee tested and find out whether you have any other people who potentially might have come into contact with them within your facility so that you you can do you know internal track and trace uh, yeah rather than relying on the nhs to do it you have a um i mean you even have a sim a symptom response plan uh, section don't you in your document in terms of providing some guidance in, uh, as to how a company can and should react should a should a symptom present yeah, I mean, the last thing you want to do is if somebody suddenly starts, you know, coughing and sweating, is for everybody in the facility to go, oh, my God, what do we do now? You want to have it written down uh, and, and say, right, OK, here's the plan. Let's just do it. And that plan is is you have an area set aside where that person can go into and is they're isolated whilst you bring the plan into, into, into effect. So that plan will obviously be arranging transport to get them home and get them get them. Uh, isolating at home but also you know it gives you it gives you a moment to, to find out who's been in close contact with them so that whole plan is written down as a symptom response plan as part of the the risk assessment and the mitigations that you, you legally have to do as an employer yeah okay um so look i want to talk a little bit about the the big issue for the vfx and post companies about the resumption of filming obviously that's going to be you know, VFX and Post didn't really stop working when the pandemic really hit in early March because the technology that it's, the technology required to work successfully remotely, by and large, was to to greater or lesser degrees actually embedded in studios already. I mean, in VFX, we've you know had remote workstation technology for some time, and and as an obvious example, but of course that presupposed that there's work to do. And all the work that was in post will eventually get completed. And if nothing new is being shot, then then we end up with a problem um, in terms of a pipeline problem. And I think you 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 know you mentioned that a few minutes ago. So tell me what your thoughts are around that issue, because obviously your your guidelines um, are more weighted towards post production and, and VFX. And I know that the, the you know the the BFI and the British um, Film Commission have published their own set of guidelines that are that are geared much more towards crew on set shoot hair and makeup and so forth i mean um how do you see that unfolding well we've got to get the, the filming restarted because as you say you know we went into this and yeah we've had some work in progress you know there was some gas in the tank uh, but that gas is pretty much gone now yeah and there are a few companies that have got work that will see them through you know and jobs that are very heavy cg rather than you know comp may have more legs and we'll we'll see them through but you know we're looking at a, a a pretty heavy shutdown here in the fact that even if filming let's say filming gets restarted in september i'm hopeful it'll get restarted earlier than that some somewhere yeah. not all but a typical vfx project is only you know a, a big vfx uh, movie is only hitting 50 percent staffing levels nine months in from the commencement of filming so that's going to take us well into next year. And, and really, you know, it will be another couple of months beyond that before you're getting up to the 100% staffing levels that you need. So there's, there's, there's going to be a very long ramp up. It'll be quicker in post-production, you know, the, 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 particularly in, in, in non-scripted. So once filming gets started, there, there will be work going back into post in terms of entertainment and factual. But, um, I mean, the entertainment side's got its own problems because obviously there's no studio audiences at the moment. So there's every, everywhere you turn, there's a, there is a problem to be solved at, at the moment. And I think the, the problems around uh, filming, as you mentioned, are hair, makeup, costume, even, even sound is a problem. You know, you, you, you need to get close to somebody to put a radio mic on them. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, um, lot of within, the, within the guidance that the BFC have put out, you know, it's, it's kind of 
getting the getting the um, the actors to mic themselves up by and large that's one of the suggestions um so i think we're going to see a growth of adr um so but all of that kind of stuff is you know is is is, is definitely um much more intractable problems than we've had in vfx and post where you know we've been able to solve most of it by a working from home skeleton crews back in base and social distancing and that's how we will will carry on uh for for the for the time being but with uh, filming, you know, it, it has come to a dead stop, um, particularly in the high value stuff. So we need to get that working. That is vital. But that's only only one um, uh, component of getting filming back to work. You know, that, that this is all about the, the social distancing and, and and all the various safety measures that we need. The other other component is the insurance, because unless we can get those shoots in, insured, then people are, are just not going to restart. Yeah, so let's drill into that in a bit more detail then, because I I was going to put that question to you specifically. I think you know shoots won't take place and, unless they're insured. You know that's that's a you know a bolted on requirement for for a shoot actually taking place at all. What is the current situation with respect to getting shoots installed, and are there going to be um, you know set uh, set set methodologies in terms of how you conduct the shoot from, from a social distancing point of view that will enable the insurance to be brought into place. What's your, you know, your your, your most up to date knowledge on all of that at the moment? If you think about, you know, the other other insurance uh, events, things like floods and terrorism, actually they're pretty uninsurable against. Um, but there is a, a, a kind of um, insurance industry and government backed system where, you know, almost like the government is the insurer of last resort in those occasions. Right. I think this is where we need the government to step in. And there have been proposals put to government to say that that's what needs to happen. And, and, and some of it will be, you know, around uh, how the insurance industry reinsures itself. But essentially, we need to get that to happen. I mean, there are some productions that will go ahead that are self-insuring, you know, that, because they're so big that, that you, you really couldn't couldn't get affordable insurance. You know, some of the broadcasters have done this over the years. They've insured themselves. But the danger is, like we, we talked about earlier, you know, that the, if, if we get a second wave, this is not just going to be one production that drops down. It could be the whole industry again. You know, and we we really don't want that, obviously, but and neither do the insurers. So, uh, and, and they're going to write COVID nineteen exclusions into all the policies anyway. So, whilst you could insure your production for everything else other than COVID nineteen, that's the most likely problem for business interruption at the moment. So, therefore, we need somebody to step in. There has been a proposal put to government to see if they will will do this because I think that's that's really is becoming now the biggest blocker to getting everything going again. I mean, it's most of the companies that we uh, we speak to on a regular basis, you know, have said similar things. Certainly, if they're in visual effects, you know that you know they they are expecting their their sort of incumbent work to sort of dry up and finish this month, next month, you know, and you're going to see potentially we've had the or we we hope we've had the the real apex of the the health crisis sort of publicly and socially but actually the economic ramifications are probably for some businesses going to hit from about now onwards aren't they so you, yeah. you know, we're going to be looking at this sort of three possibly six month you know hiatus in work coming through i mean you mentioned earlier that you thought we might get started sooner than sooner than september on the filming side july august what are you thinking are some uh, productions which are starting to do this you know yeah and the other thing we need to think about in terms of visual effects of course it doesn't necessarily have to be shot in the uk the um we are taking you know work in and we want to take work in it doesn't matter where it's shot in the world it can still be posted and and, and have the vfx done here in the uk yeah so you know you're starting to see other areas of the world open up like the gold coast the headlines will all be around oh yeah they're shooting neighbors again or they're shooting you know home and away or as it should be called now home and two meters away but <laughs> but th that kind of stuff you know is going on and, and and atlanta is opening up and so all of those those um films that have been shot there we we need to be able to get the post and vfx into into the uk so it's not just about our own um uk filming industry so whilst that is really important for obviously all of those freelancers that are currently sitting around twiddling their thumbs and worrying, worrying where the next paycheck's coming from, 
that's really, really important. But in terms of posting VFX, we've got to take a global picture on this. Yeah, and I would imagine actually, you know, from, from my understanding of lots of the businesses we deal with, there's plenty of stuff that's coming through. The, certainly the big studios uh, in the UK, you know, the big VFX houses, you know, a lot of that stuff won't be shot in the UK um, and frequently is not. So um, do you think that there will be any sort of knock-on effect on sort of government tax incentives for shooting and for post, you know, the, the, sort, of, the sort of incentives that, you know, we've relied on in say the uk and in you know in vancouver and sort of times past and up to today is is the pandemic likely to have a positive impact on prolonging those or changing them is that something that's ever come into the discussions well i think we know that they're going to be prolonged they're, they're not going to, going to go away now the question is is, is could we get anything better yeah um, so i think there is a case and we are making that case to say there are potentially some issues that you could resolve with the tax credits that would make it easier for work no matter where it had been shot in the world to come to the UK uh, for VFX um, because um, whilst that is a, an immediate problem and there are there are other issues I mean I think we are we've been so successful in in getting work into the UK for filming there is a problem with the tax reliefs where there is an 80% cap so once you once you spend more than eighty percent of your budget in the UK, you don't get any further tax relief. So that it can be an issue if you've done a lot of filming in the UK. So if it's exclusively filmed in the UK, then it becomes difficult to do the VFX in the UK because at that point there's no tax relief available. But we've also seen, you know, in the last few few well last couple of years, that the German tax credit has become a lot more competitive. You can get 40% in Germany now. And we've seen also a move by uh, the French tax credit to offer 40% for jobs that are uh, spend, spending more than 2 million euros on their VFX. So this is, you know, before we've even finished leaving leaving Europe. I mean, although Brexit's officially happened, we're still bound into the, the transition period. But we've seen France and Germany increase the value of their tax credit and and the, the effectiveness of their tax credit. So I think there are there are areas, and this is before even COVID came came along, where we need to look at whether that, those tax credits are um, increased or, or amended so that we've got a more level playing field. And certainly, you know, in terms of a level playing field, there is no level playing field with Canada. Certainly, with not with Montreal. But and how does um... we've got marginally better weather? But, yeah. <laughs> um, and in terms of the work that you do and your organization does, I mean, how do you, with a point like that, for example, I mean, how do you take that to government? What is the process through which you, you know, you lobby them um, on an issue? Well, like you have to build consensus before you go to government. And yeah. you, you talk to, particularly around the fact that the filming incentive is, is so good. Um, you don't want to damage that in any way. So essentially you build the evidence and build the case and and then then you take it forward and that's what we've been doing over the last couple of years and we've got to find the the optimum moment obviously um and and, and to that that extent you know brexit has kind of inhibited us because we are bound by certain state aid restrictions on what we can do which is not the case with canada so um it's not been it's not been an easy time to propose anything like that but obviously now COVID-19 has given a whole new dimension to this. And also now we're, we're just about getting to the point where, you know, the Brexit transition, the trade deals, it's a very complicated economic and political scenario. So you just have to, you have to make sure you've got a consensus, not just across the industry, but also with the politicians. Yeah. And I mean, it is going to be very important to, to get those messages across to government, isn't it? Because in, those tax incentives are going to, they're they're going to be de facto stimulus packages, really, aren't they? Given what we've talked about, from you know the cessation of filming and trying to sort of steer through what is likely to be a very difficult three to six months as a result of that. It could be. It could be. You know, one of those things that that uh, would be within a package of, of, of support for the film industry. Um, you know, certainly it, it, this uh, ha there has been a consensus that has been built around this. Uh, I'm not going to going to go into this deeply because it's all it's all 
very politically sensitive. It's one of the things that I, I think that we could be doing and we are doing and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yes, of course. But it's good to know that there is a, you know, there is a body that, you know, has its members' interests, at, at, you know, at heart in that way, um, particularly at a time like this. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sort of future tense then uh, in terms of where this is all going. I mean, what, what do you think are going to be the the longer term effects of the pandemic on the VFX post-production industries. I mean, once we get beyond that problem with filming resumption, let's assume that that's, that's starting to happen. You know, what do you think are the longer term implications for our industry? I think we're going to end up with a, a blended model of on-prem and, and off-prem. I think that's uh, very clear that, you know, some people have made this work quite well. There's problems, obviously. It, there's a whole issue around getting used to the management of a creative team when it's distributed so it's and you can't just you know walk up behind somebody and tap on their shoulder and, and give them give them a suggestion or, or they can't just come over to you and, and do that even with all the all the, the kind of collaboration software that we've got there are there are certain challenges in working with your team in a distributed way and i think that's something that we've still got to probably learn a bit more from even, even with um you know even in 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 sort of non-creative business you know if you're a sales team or something i mean actually it's doable you know you can you can hold your team meetings and you can have your discussions and uh, and you can work but it, it it is different isn't it it does bring a different sort of overhead in terms of time and structure and you know there are different etiquettes and things you need to consider in terms of dealing with everybody over zoom calls all the time rather than sort of seeing people face to face it isn't as it's not the same you know, I think everyone's missing their water cooler moments as well. You know, that's uh, that's a real uh, people don't realise how much that informal gossip actually just helps cement the team and and sometimes aids communication. I mean, it can be a problem in the fact that sometimes it can be cliquey. So, um, yeah, but it, it's it's one of those areas where I think you know we need to look at this because I think we're going to be in this mixed economy of on-prem and off-prem for quite quite a while, and even when we get out the other side there will be people who are looking at their economic models, particularly in post-production, where they're going to be looking at, you know, it, it, we're in the crazy situation where we were pre-COVID. When if you, if you were a tourist, I would advise them, you know, it's cheaper for you to book an edit suite than it is for you to book a hotel room. You can that's, actually... That's a fascinating insight. Yeah, I mean... So that can't be right, can it? You know, no, of course not. Okay, no. you're not going to get a double bed, but you are going to get a nice sofa and hopefully 24-7 runner service. And, and you can also edit your home movies whilst you're there. But, you know, the idea that Post has become such a commoditized service that it's now been, the, the, the value of it has been forced down so much that uh, you end up in that situation. So well, I think a lot, a lot of companies are going to look at how they resource that, which is effectively a loss leader. They're going yeah. to look at it and say, well, do we really need to do this in very expensive Soho premises or, or central London premises? And I think the landlords are going to have uh, a, a number of people who are going to be trying to get out of leases and people will be reducing their floor space. We're hearing that in several places already. I think, you know, remote technology is working well for them. There's been a question in certainly in VFX for a good couple of years now. Should we put the kit in the data center? Should we should we put it somewhere else? Should we put it in the cloud? Do we really need all this you know expensive floor space? And I think it's probably going to accelerate. What might have taken another two years to happen, you know, or another three years to happen, it will, will probably happen in six months, eight months, or a year or something. It it will accelerate that. I think there's no doubt. You're absolutely right about that. And it is sort of. You know, it's an inverse logic, isn't it? That, as you say, your your uh, your comment about a hotel room versus the cost of a an edit suite. You know, to then be running so much of that business in some of the most expensive real estate in the world doesn't really seem to make much sense, does it? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's an interesting parallel how um, an, an unforeseen natural thing. Well, we've been here before on on something that has changed and accelerated the pace of change so if you remember th thinking back to i think when was it it was 2011 i think it was when the the tsunami happened in in japan yeah so that hit the east coast of of, of japan and, and that was where the sony factory was that was producing 90 percent of the world's tape stock so that factory was completely disabled for several months. And I remember when, it, when the tsunami happened, within a matter of days, the cost of tape stock had quadrupled. And that, I think, 
started an acceleration of uh, the move to totally digital working and particularly digital delivery and broadcast. So we, we, we were already on a trajectory to uh, master programs as files, but actually that trajectory was pretty much completed by 2014. And it could have taken a, a couple of years longer, I think, had we not had that pressure to master to, to, to hard disk instead of to a, a videotape. Um, yeah, it's a good just, you just couldn't get the tape. Yeah, you know, as you say, you're quite... already on a trajectory. It just accelerated it. And I think we'll, we're very much going to see the same with remote working remote working here. I mean, what do you think about culturally? Um, I mean, one of the things I found really interesting about your document actually was uh, your your guidelines document for um, for safe working in environments is that there were some, there were, I, I picked out a few examples. The one that sticks in my mind is about um, is about aspects of the workflow that, that revolve around color accuracy, um, high definition and color accuracy. You know, you're in that document, you're sort of guiding the client, if you like, to be respectful or understanding of the fact that certain things don't work fully remotely at this time, you know, which I thought was quite an interesting distinction to make in a guidelines document and therefore gave it, you know, a huge amount of credibility. Well, I think, you know, that, that partly comes from personal experience of, yeah. of, of dealing with, with um, you know, brands particularly where they're very, you know, you've got to have the right shade of green on the end board, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that really is, is very important. And, if you're going to try and judge that over a, a mobile phone or, or a, you know, a home computer display that's not calibrated, it's 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 going to lead to problems and it could lead to an unnecessary demand to come in. Oh, we've got to come in and we've got to regrade, you know, and we're trying to avoid that. And so I do I do think it's it it was worth putting that point in there um, about you know not all grading not all um, remote viewing systems are equal. There are some that are better than others, uh, and and but then again, you know, a quick and dirty editorial review, you know, you're, you're going to bang out an H two six four out out of the back of an Avid, um, is, is is absolutely right and proper if you're just doing an editorial review, but don't get trying to judge quality issues like you know, is it the right color or or you know, is the sound right, is the sound mix right or whatever from something that you're then listening to over your mobile phone. Definitely, yeah. So. And, and it's not just about the display; it's about the environment that they're watching it in. It's are they watching it in a in a room which is you know brightly lit in sunlight, or is it in a, a properly calibrated environment? And clearly, you know, you have no control over that. So you've got to kind of say, this this is why we do what we do. This is why we have calibrated rooms. This is why we have calibrated monitors. That's the reason for you know that why post houses exist. There's there's no way that you can review a Dolby Atmos mix. Off your mobile phone so that's what post production is there for that's the, that's the value end of the business and i think we, we need to emphasize that but also realize you know you can't do everything uh remotely yeah as you say a mixed model for the future um i mean do you also think i mean i've i've heard opinions espoused by a few people that we've spoken to that potentially if we get over the hump of there having not been any filming we could see the uk Post the VFX industry extremely busy, possibly you know to never before seen levels. You know, once that's once that comes to pass, I mean, is, is that something you foresee? It would be nice if that comes to pass and comes to pass quickly. But um, yeah. I think it's it's a difficult one to call. Um, you know, clearly the the streaming video services, the Netflix, the Amazons, etc., they're doing extremely well, and we've done really well off those over the last few years particularly and I, I think they're still driving they're still hungry for content and you know their su subscriber base has gone up and up and up so I think that part of the the chain is really healthy but I think the the larger feature films obviously the cinemas are still shut yeah Would, are you as a distributor are you going to be that fussed about putting out your hundred million dollar blockbuster film into a cinema that can only take 20% of its normal capacity because of social distancing. You know, we've already seen that with Bond. You know, it's gone back. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I think that it, that is something that we've got to factor in. And, and some of that production, you know, has it just shunted down in, in terms of uh, its schedule? Has it pushed everything down? You know, are, are they not commissioning? Are they not starting new films? Because they've still got a backlog. And are we going to get double bubble? 
at the point when everything starts going again. And I, I, I'm a little more sceptical about that. And I think uh, if it weren't for the, the streaming video services, I think we'd have a big problem. But I think that will help us maintain the growth. The good thing is, you know, if you think back to 2008, when the financial crash happened, yeah, that was bad. It's not as bad as this, but it was bad. But once we got going, the industry as a whole enjoyed for a decade or more double, you know, double the rate of uh, growth of the rest of the economy. It was really powering ahead, you know. And, and we got to the uh, the situation where I think it was in the last quarter of last year, where the Office of National Statistics, when they produced the the kind of economy, uh, the economy measures, the the gross domestic product, and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, it actually singled out the motion picture industry for the growth it had had, and and it was actually responsible for keeping the UK out of recession. You know, it's an amazing statistic. That, that is an incredible statistic. Yeah, yeah. And we're looking at you know, if you look at the um, quarter one statistics that the BFI put out for this year, so pre-COVID, only just being marginally affected by COVID, the rolling twelve months up until that point, was the biggest 12 months that we'd ever had. You know, something like £3.6 billion pounds worth of, of, of spend in high-end high television and film. And, and we should be able to get back to that growth. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, once we get back on the trajectory, we'll be doing the same thing again. We'll be leading the economy and we'll be turning in the right kind of figures. And we talked about tax relief earlier. A lot of people don't realise, but, you know, there, there's always this question about, well, why should we be giving tax relief to film lovies? You know, surely it's better to go into the NHS or to, to, to some kind of national infrastructure. Why are we giving it to, to film lovies? It's very simple. It's because it's not a handout. It's actually a very strategic investment by the government because it's a promise to the filmmakers that they're going to get this tax rebate. They don't get it until they've spent the money. And actually, one pound of tax relief on film generates seven pounds sixty nine of value for the UK economy. So it's a big return. Yeah, it's an incentive, isn't it? Really, rather than a but, but it's, it's well, just, it's an incentive, but it's also yeah. for the government. They get more money back than they put in. It's a return on investment. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a bit of a no brainer in that in that sense. And and so you know when we when we're talking about and as we may well be talking about in future, you know when there's some real hard budget decisions for the government to make coming up. But from, in terms of film and TV, it's been recognised by successive governments that it is a real good value for money proposition to support this industry. And the dialogue that you have with government currently would support that that's still the, the, the prevailing view? And the last report that, that went out was in 2018. There was a thing called the Screen Business Report by the BFI. And the then Chancellor, which was Philip Hammond, did the foreword to it, and he committed the government to the long-term maintenance of the tax credits. Um, we've had two chancellors since then. So um, I think the government must, must surely realise, and, and we're certainly making this case, that it, it is a good strategic investment and it does give you a value-for-money return on investment. Well, I remember the, the, the 2008 financial crash and, it, you know, and it, all of its... You know ramifications, and I think it it certainly felt like the, the visual effects industry in the UK was I wouldn't say untouched by it, but it there were, certainly there was a as you say there was there was there were struggles with advertising revenue and the advertising sector in particular got hit by it. But I think on the film side, it, it weathered that quite well um, because of the the demand for content content and the fact that you know the UK was and is such a you know a, a global premier center for visual effects and i this is a little different of course because this isn't um this isn't a financial crash that's seeping out and affecting other industries this is a a very different order of problem that has a you know a kind of uh, a pan industry effect but i mean uh, on the whole are you optimistic for the future of the the uk vfx post industry post covid i mean it sounds like you are to me I think you've got to be. I mean, the track yeah. record shows that we, we have. We've got a few current problems that we've got to deal with. And, you know, the, the, the change, for instance, to the, the, the job retention scheme, the furloughing that yeah. everyone has, has. It has been a godsend for many in, industries. 
But because we've got this delayed hiatus, we've got a particular problem now with it. Uh, I mean, this might, this is so current that by the time this podcast goes goes out, it'll have happened. Yeah. So where we've got at the moment is the Chancellor has changed the rules so that if you haven't already been furloughed, you can't be furloughed after, after July the 1st. So the idea that he's got a flexible furlough was something that he was, you know, they, they were very proud of. And he, he pulled this rabbit out of the hat saying, we're going to do it a month early. But I'm afraid it's caught out a few people. Um, so, for instance, where you have still been delivering uh, projects and you've kept, your, you've kept your best artists on, you haven't furloughed them, it now, now becomes a problem because basically by June the 10th, um, which is kind of a couple of days after we're recording this, you've got to have furloughed them. Otherwise, you can't furlough them. So I think that is going to cause a few job losses that would have, we could have avoided. Yeah, it's, as you say, it's, a, it's out of step, isn't it, with what we discussed earlier, the filming problem, you know, as in there's, you know, some of the some of the VFX companies or post companies have cut their cloth accordingly. They furloughed certain people. They've steered through, you know, a period of downturn where they still had work, but obviously now not having work yeah. or not having as much work, as you say, that that, that creates a very specific issue. Um, and then, yeah, very current. I mean, in fact, I was having a conversation uh, with one of our, um, VFX partners who you know very very well about that exact issue the other day on a call so it is uh, absolutely topical I mean it, it the one thing is that those people although they will still be obviously those people will still be there they, they won't be in, employed by that particular company but they're still they're still there they've still got their skills they've still got their knowledge they've still got their experience we've just got to bridge that gap when okay they may not be attached to a company and hope when we get to this point where we, we suddenly get the takeoff again that we can bring them all back in and re-employ them. Um, I mean, ideally, we would have been able to furlough them. But as I say, some people have just been caught out by the way this is the timing of this has come in, in their production cycle. And that's been re I think that's been really unfortunate. It's, it's a point we've been making to the government for months now. And uh, it, it prompted me to write to the Chancellor last week to say, you know, there is this, this effect here. Um, but, you know, I, 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 the Chancellor views the, the job retention scheme as very expensive. And, you know, the, there was going to be a point where it was going to ramp down. Fortunately, unfortunately, I think it will ramp down slightly too early for us. We could do with it for a, a, a few more months. And for our sector, yeah. We, yeah, for our sector, because I think we're, we're, we've still got a period where we've got a fallow period, you know, to come. And it's going to, going to last a few months longer. We're trying to make that case with government. But also, we've got to think about the future case. And, you know, we've talked about tax reliefs and possible incentives um, that we could, that we could um, make use of for the future. And also our track record in, in coming out of these, these, um, these kind of depressions or recessions. Um, I think we, we've, we're very good at that. And, you know, I think the, the public demand for content is still there, still strong. They may not want to go into into cinemas, but they're very happy to sit, you know, in front of their big widescreen tellies and and watch the uh, watch the streaming services. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're we're extremely fortunate in the fact that this is happening now and not happening ten to fifteen years ago, because I think a we wouldn't have had the remote technology to be able to cope with carrying on work because of the prevalence of the the streaming service. And we've also got all the streaming services as well as a whole new market. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's going to that market's going to change. I mean, there's some interesting things going on there with uh, the streaming services. Uh, you know, so where things would have gone to cinema release and had the you know the cinema window, and now some content is is being released in cinemas and on the streaming services simultaneously. And I think that may be an interesting area uh, to look at because uh, that is quite a big change in the dynamic of the distribution industry. It was happening a bit before COVID, wasn't it? There were there were there were occasional releases that that I was aware of, you know, pre-COVID, where there was a, a I think, um, I think where typically we're funded by the streaming services. I think um, the Irishman, the Scorsese movie. I think it, it was in cinemas for a very short period of time before hitting Netflix, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's, that's more about getting getting into the awards ceremonies. Yes, than, than anything else. Uh, yeah. Of course, that that has already been shown to be a, a problem. I think uh, you know the Oscars. Uh, I've had to look about the uh, the the criteria for qualification for, for next year because clearly there's there's 
a lot of films that won't have their mandatory uh, release on in 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 LA uh, that is necessary to qualify for uh, an Oscar nomination. Yes, it's going to. Um, I hadn't thought of that actually, but it's going to create havoc, isn't it, for the for the the consecutive season of of awards um, in film and television? Because as you say, if things haven't been released in order to qualify, you haven't really got anything to award. Um, yeah. Another challenge that we face <laughs> as an industry, one of many. Um, well, I think um, I think that probably brings us to a natural close. Actually, um, a huge thank you for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure to have you on, and it's been uh, really interesting to to speak to somebody who who has the role that you have um, in terms of working for a, a, a you know a, a trade and advisory body essentially, and and the work that you you guys are doing for UK visual effects and post production. So. So I think that pretty much wraps it up for this epi- uh, for this episode. So thanks once again to Neil for talking to us this afternoon. That's been really illuminating. Um, and for those of you who are, who are listening and are interested, you can download the UK Screen Alliance guidelines for COVID-19 safe working practices from their website, which you can find at ukscreenalliance.co.uk.